Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Misaligned. We took a brief break for Thanksgiving and we will have another break coming up for, you know, the Christmas holiday and everything, but we will inform you of how long that break will be in our next regular episode. So this is going to be our last book club episode though for the year because we don't want to rush you guys and have you try and finish a book in two weeks, nor do I want to do that to myself or... Megan, I'm sure you have plans coming up for the holidays, so we'll just I do. We'll just leave it at this one for the year and this month's pick was Talking to Girls about Duran Duran by Rob Sheffield and since it was a book I had already read, Megan is the fresh set of eyes for this book. So, Megan, I'm sure I will ask you a lot of a lot of questions because I did say I was going to kind of try and go back and skim the book, and I absolutely did not do that. So <laughs> we're just going to go off of what I remember or what I think I remember from this book. But I believe I did read it this year at least, so it's not like I read it a long time ago and I'm trying to remember. But what were your initial thoughts on this book? It was the only Rob Sheffield book that I actually haven't read with okay. the exclusion of On Bowie for obvious reasons that I haven't read that yet because it's like still brand new. Um, So I was excited to read it and I had to renew it about three times from my (laughs) library because I forgot to read it at times and I was like, oh crap, I got to do this. So I did actually get it finished over Thanksgiving break. Nice. And I enjoyed it. Like all of his other books that I've read, Love is a Mixtape, Turnaround Bright Eyes. I liked this one. I would have to say that this one was probably my second favorite after turnaround bright eyes okay but it it gave a good look into rob sheffield's life as you know growing up when he went through his awkward teen years that we (laughs) all went through no matter what anyone says we all went through those and i liked that he was able to weave in much like his other two books just the tales of the tunes themselves Yeah, and just a few quick facts on this book. It was his second book, and it was released in July of 2010. And I'm on his very, very short Wikipedia page, which kind of surprised me. It's literally like, you know, six sentences. I was like, well, how is there not more information on him on Wikipedia? But that aside, he's kind of been spacing out his book releases every three years. So Love is a Mixtape was in 2007, then 2010 was this book, and then 2013 was Turnaround Bright Eyes, and like you mentioned, On Bowie was earlier this year. And that technically was more of a last-minute release that was written right after Bowie's death. I remember reading the Rolling Stone review about it um, a few weeks after Bowie's death, actually. Yeah, and Obviously, that one, like you said, wasn't planned, but it just coincidentally fell within that same three-year period. So what do you think about him taking, you know, three years to get to his next book? Do you wish we had more books from him just because of how he writes about music and how kind of personal and entertaining he can make it? Because I know... A lot of, especially fiction writers, they sort of pump out books all the time, especially if you look at a writer like Stephen King. I can't even keep up with how many books he's written. And if it's one a year, two a year, like that man is just insane and probably not the standard by any means for 
most writers, but do you think taking his time to do these books is sort of what makes them more interesting to read? Or would you, like I've said, prefer he had more books out than he actually does so far? Good stuff takes time. I mean, there are some folks out there who can crank out a book every year. Right. And I'm just like, how? Why? Yeah. Do you just focus everything and your entire time and energy into this one book that you're releasing? Or do you pre-plan these things? Whatever. So I think taking time to craft out these carefully written books is a lot better than just being a writing machine, in all honesty. It's interesting because we can actually see different time periods start to evolve in his writing. Right. Like, with Love is a Mixtape, that one was the first one he released, and reading it in today's day and age is a little different than, say, when it initially came out, which I believe was the early 2000s? Does that sound about right? I don't have a book on hand with me right now. But since this one came out in 2010, it's still relatively new, and he's able to weave in some musical references that we're all familiar with, kind of interjecting it with the songs of the 80s and 70s and all those great decades. (laughs) And... I think with Turnaround Bright Eyes, that was the most recent book he released along in the lines of writing about his life and using these book chapters as a live mixtape for everything. And that chronicled his adult years. And since that one definitely was the most recent, there are still some references that are still pretty commonplace today. Yeah. And like you mentioned these books are sort of like mixtapes in themselves. And in this book, every chapter is named after a song. So, you know, the first chapter is the Go-Go's Our Lips Are Sealed, and it closes out with Duran Duran's All She Wants Is. So obviously, you know, the book title being Talking to Girls about Duran Duran, this whole book isn't about Duran Duran, which, you know, the book title itself might give off that impression but like you said he mixes a lot of songs into his books especially when he started you know with love is a mixtape obviously he was definitely going for that mixtape vibe in that book and he sort of like you said continues that with each book but to me because you know, obviously taking three years, he does other stuff in between. He doesn't just write books like someone like Stephen King or, you know, Dean Coons and these horror and thriller writers do. Because he has his Rolling Stone gig as well. Yeah. And to me, he's sort of similar to Chuck Klosterman in that sense, because while Chuck has more books that he's written, he does stuff for GQ and, you know, they... Both, I think, have done stuff for Spin. Maybe Chuck Klosterman hasn't, but I know Rob Sheffield definitely has. But, you know, Chuck Klosterman would write for Grantland and go on Bill Simmons' podcast. So it's like he was doing these other things while writing books. So it's not like, you know, he writes a book and then he just stops. It's like he sort of does other things as he writes, I'm sure, which is why, obviously, the three-year gaps between each book. Mm Mm-hmm. And I do actually want to mention something quite interesting about this book. When flipping through these chapters, 
Of course, I haven't heard some of these songs before because they're well before my time. Right. Being a 25-year-old who kind of steered clear of, like, 80s pop songs in a way. Um, But Chapter 10 is Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. And that is actually the song that, you know, Turn Around Bright Eyes was written about, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that he opens that chapter with, People rarely threaten to kill me these days. Always a great way to enter a new chapter. And he was talking about 2005 and being on crutches. Um, But then he goes back and talks about how, let's see, where is it? Ah, yes. A time in the summer of 1983 when he worked in a garbage truck with a bunch of other guys. And somehow... It tied into this violence that he, I guess, encountered of some sort in 2005. And interestingly enough, is not actually about karaoke. Right. Which is technically what Turnaround Bright Eyes is about. Yeah. And wow, this is a very expletive-laden chapter. I'm reading through this trying to find a nice (laughs) sentence to read. And I do want to keep it, you know, fairly PG over here. I don't think I can actually uh, talk about this chapter without actually, (laughs) you know, ripping that apart. Um, But anyway, yeah. And going back to what you were saying earlier about the whole mixtape thing. Right. In the chapter about Funky Cold Medina, which is (laughs) a timeless song that everyone should treasure for obvious reasons. (laughs) He talks about the single, Right. Which is something, you know, we don't really see these days. We see vinyl singles. We see CD singles. But the single is not only very fun to say, but it's very much a relic of the past. And I think it's interesting that this chapter itself actually has relics of the single age in a little mixtape format as well, starting with... Funky Cold Medina, leading off with another Tone Lock song. He wasn't sure, you know, if he should show love to Funky Cold Medina or Wild Thing. And it goes into other artists like Paula Abdul, Debbie Gibson, George Monkey, George Michael. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely leaving that in there for the comedic effect. (laughs) I think, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) George... George Michael's monkey, which uh, I enjoyed this little sentence here. I would totally wear that Lederhosen ensemble he's rocking in this video, but no way could my calves be as seductive as George Michael's. (laughs) I did not know that he released a single, like a single called Monkey, and I've just, you know, butchered everything. Then we've got Whitney and Bobby, Fine Young Cannibals, not relevant song. She drives me crazy, but I'm not the man I used to be. Uh, let's see, Young MC, Rick Astley, and it's not even a Rick roll. It's a different Rick Astley song. Well, let's see, Nina Cherry, Soul to Soul. Oh, hey, Black Streets, No Diggity was a single. Nice. And I think that was a great thing to include. Although it's interesting that he says later that Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back is the only hit song of the single era or of his lifetime that everybody can quote it well. I think I know more people that can quote No Diggity 
but that might be because it was on Pitch Perfect. Yes, I was going to say, I think we can blame Pitch Perfect for that. Yeah, and uh, I may have learned something else from reading about the No Diggity song, where Rob Sheffield stole Vatka single from his mom, who got it as a Christmas gift from one of her students. <laughs> he says, note, my mom was teaching first grade at the time. I mean, I liked my first grade teacher too, but I never gave her a song about a hooker who got game by the pound. <laughs> very true and i mean i enjoy the fact that there is some comedic effect in this list and in this book as a whole because that era of growing up as a teenager can be awkward and can be filled with hilarious moments as i flip back to a few chapters where he talks about um the wrestling team and how let's see different different chapters um the wrestling team where no one believed that he actually you know was on the wrestling team and then another chapter that talks about oh yes the rolling stones she's so cold is the wrestling chapter and then the other chapter that talks about his sisters and school dances in a way everyone can read this and kind of you know associate some part of their life with parts of his life and kind of i don't know it made me think that if I were to write a book about my awkward teen years, like, what songs I would include on it, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Right. Like, did you get that vibe from that at all? Like, did you want to make a list of uh, songs that complimented your awkward teen years after reading it? I don't know if I necessarily wanted to do that. I was sort of more so interested in kind of learning more about the songs that he mentioned that I wasn't aware of because, you know, like you said, 80s wasn't quite your thing. You don't really pay much attention to 80s music and that sort of thing. And, you know, but he has a lot of big artists and songs that are still being talked about today. And then he has some other ones that you're kind of like, okay, um, what is this? You know? And oh, oh, you mean like, uh, this one's just really fun to say. Hazy Fantasy's Shiny Shiny? Yes. <laughs> I think that one is the one that was really like, what? What is this? Right. So, it's not bad. And it's interesting, too, if we're talking about the fact that he wrote a book about Bowie, he opens the Ashes to Ashes chapter with David Bowie ended life as I knew it one Sunday morning, entering my life the way a true prophet should over a bowl of fruity pebbles yeah like i i think that's it's a weird sentence to read in the wake of his death right but it's also pretty funny because i mean fruity pebbles it's like david bowie's a god entering someone's life with fruity pebbles i don't know this is just me rambling you know no big deal <laughs> and I mean, for me, even just with the first sentence of the book, it's kind of like he had me hooked there. And the first sentence is, if you ever step into the Wayback Machine and zip to the 1980s, you will have some interesting conversations, even though nobody will believe a word you say. And to me, it's like that sentence, it doesn't even have anything to do with music, but it kind of makes you go like, huh. That's probably very true. And where is he going to go with this? I know. And 
I mean, if you do take a look at the Wayback Machine, I'm sure music websites, as they existed in some form in the 80s, would not nearly be as factual as websites today. I say that because, you know, a lot of things in the 80s, just whatever was said, went, leading to many urban legends and just ridiculous tall tales. It was a very different era from the 70s with that whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll glamour type thing. Right. And I also do want to talk about the fact that there are two artists that we lost this year that it was interesting to read the chapters posthumously. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, we've talked about Bowie. There's no denying that. And I do like that Bowie was included in this. But also, Prince's Purple Rain. Right. And somehow, after reading the first sentence of this chapter, I was the ice cream man the summer after high school. That's not the first thing that comes to mind when I think Purple Rain. Or Prince. Exactly. So I like that he'll take these little anecdotes of his life, tie them into these songs, and make them, you know, slightly humorous to catch people's attention. Right. And... I think, you know, you mentioned wanting to kind of make your own mixtape of your teenage years after reading this. And while I don't think I felt quite the same way, I think the idea of mixtapes is still something that's a cool idea. But because of how it's implemented now, I feel like it doesn't have quite the same effect because, you know, people make playlists for literally everything now on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever service they use. And it feels like you don't have to take quite the same amount of time to, you know, figure out what order you want the songs to go in and everything. Because if you were burning this onto a CD, it's like once you burned it onto the CD, that was the order. And now you can just drag and drop tracks in all of these streaming services. It's like, If you listen through it and you don't like the order, it's like you can just go change it. Whereas if someone gave you a CD, it's like that was what you had. Right. He captures a lot of what we don't have anymore with music and, you know, with the way things are today. It's sort of like you can hear a song from someone and you can just go find it on the internet immediately. You don't really have to do work for these mixtapes you don't have to spend hours listening to the radio and then pushing record on your tape player as soon as you hear the song that you want i mean we're both 90s kids this is something i remember doing fondly as a small kid with a tape player and a radio that had a built-in tape player (laughs) see i never did this really no i don't think we i don't think we had tapes to like we didn't have too many tapes i know my parents had some of their tapes left over but from what i can remember we always were using cds huh and i think that's an interesting thing to bring up too because i guess there is within the 90s kids some sort of divide as to who did the tape thing and who did the cd thing because i remember fondly when um alia's are you that somebody came out I think I was flipping channels on the TV one day as a small kid. Wasn't technically allowed to watch MTV, but I did anyway. Sorry, mom. Probably explains a lot about me today. Um, but I heard that song. It's like, oh, this is great. I think it'll, if they're playing it on MTV, I'm sure they'll play it on the radio. And I remember actually 
listening to the radio and trying to hear if that song would come on and then trying to record it and oh it was a mess it was such a mess uh (laughs) yeah i definitely never did that (laughs) yeah i definitely did and this was even well before the age of shazam where you could just take your phone and push the little listen to this song button Right. to hear what the song is instantly like i didn't actually know that it was Aaliyah's are you that somebody until well after the fact i think when i was a little older because it's like okay what's that song that had that are you that somebody line like i can't think of who sang it i can't think of the name but it was catchy and i liked it and i never could hear them talking about it on the radio i just you know caught it on the radio right so it was kind of frustrating to have to deal with that but you know Yeah, and I think it's just really interesting to read about this from the perspective of a different era, basically. And obviously, I believe Rob Rob Sheffield is 50 years old now, which surprised me. I I thought, really? That's that's what it says. I'm going with that. It says he was born February 2nd, 1966 on Wikipedia. So that is what we're going with. (laughs) And that sort of surprised me. I was like, wait he's 50 like you know i didn't i guess it makes sense but i was also like wait he's like our parents age (laughs) kind of thing and i think you know my next question for you is do you want to see him write about more recent songs like you know 2000s going forward that a younger audience would be able to connect with because while these songs occurred you know in his teenage years and everything he's been writing about music so long that i think he could still do a book on songs from you know 2000s to now and maybe it won't necessarily have the same personal connections but i would love to hear his thoughts sort of on how the music not necessarily the scene has changed but just music in general has changed because i think the 2000s are <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> the 2000s are a pretty good place to start as far as you know a big change in the music scene i feel like 2000s going forward there was even more of a focus sort of on mainstream music and these big pop songs and you know the boy bands and Britney Spears and all of that sort of thing. While yes, they did start in the late nineties. It's like the two thousands is when they really it blew really up exploded. and got big, right? But you mean kind of, kind of in the realm of the song machine in a way, where it takes a very specific little niche, right, and writes about it. Like, I think that probably would be the best tie-in for this conversation right now, because it does actually talk about that decade. And I, I do think it would be interesting to see Rob write about that. I really do. Yeah, and I don't think he needs to do it in necessarily the same technical aspect that the song machine did, because that obviously focused a lot on the writing of the songs, the recording of the songs, and kind of like the whole industry machine that goes behind making these songs and pushing them out i just sort of want to hear or read his thoughts on one direction or in sync or the backstreet boys yeah but sort of how that affected how he consumes music because with love is a mixtape and talking to girls about duran duran you really get a sense of 
how Rob listened to music and, you know, when he listened to music and sort of that thing. While we both haven't read On Bowie, I haven't read Turnaround Bright Eyes, so I kind of read his books in order so far. So I will probably just continue to do that and hit Turnaround Bright Eyes next and then read On Bowie at some point. So I don't know if Turnaround Bright Eyes covers more recent songs or if it's sort of that's still like that 80s karaoke sort of thing where, you know, a lot of people will do Don't Stop Believing and, you know, those sort of songs at karaoke night because kind of it's like everyone knows them. The songs of Glee. Right. Yeah, basically. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It could be interesting. It could... It's something I would like to read. And I think as we're talking about this, watch and be writing something about this, you know? Right. <laughs> so I think Rob has read Modern Vinyl before because of James, possibly. And if he's listening, hey, Rob, if you're listening, you should maybe take our advice and uh, write a book about <laughs> the 2000s and how it weaves into your life and all that stuff like i'm sure i'm sure you've got great stories about that that was such a long shot though (laughs) such a long shot yeah and you know i obviously i read this book a little while ago so i don't remember all of the details but to me it was also just interesting what songs he picked as the chapter titles because like we mentioned purple rain that's a really really big song and he does have a couple from bands that are still talked about a lot, especially within our scene. And those two would be the replacements left of the dial and the Smiths ask. And while those aren't necessarily the songs people probably focus on the most from those two artists, it's like, I would say those two artists are still covered the most on, you know, sites like consequence of sound spin, et cetera. And well, fu- funnily enough, the one of the local record stores that I go to is called Left of the Dial, and I never really understood that because I didn't realize it was a replacement song, but I'm betting that is why the shop is named that now. Possibly, and I was just about to say, we didn't do a misaligned reads about the replacements, uh, 33 and a third, but I think we may have talked about it a little. Yeah, because I think that's one we both read. I know it was the first of the 33 and a thirds that I read. Because it mm-hmm. was the replacements Let It Be. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think at the time I totally thought I was grabbing the Beatles Let It Be. So, you know, there was that. But it was still a good read. And I think what Rob does is very entertaining. And the fact that he keeps his books all a similar style, which to me, I think, you know, Chuck Klosterman does this, but he talks about a lot of different topics, not just focusing on music as we know when we read one of his books earlier for the book club and i know i've read a few of his i don't know if you've read any more than what we did for the book club or not but i find them both enjoyable but for slightly different reasons if that makes sense it does and you know while we're talking about chuck I think it is important, at least the copy that I have checked out from the library. Mm -hmm. It's a hardback. It's a pretty good, you know, solid book. But on the back, it actually has um, praise about talking to girls about Duran Duran with a quote from Chuck Klosterman himself. Nice. 
And he says, a handful of rock writers can explain what they think about music, and lots of rock writers can explain what they feel about music. What makes Rob Sheffield different is that he understands how those feelings are generated. He can turn those abstract emotions into concrete thoughts. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes the smartest guy in the room is also the funniest guy in the room, and the nicest guy, and the tallest guy, and the most (laughs) vocal Shaka Khan fan. Read Talking to Girls about Duran Duran and enter that room. Yeah, and that's funny because the Shaka Khan song is I Feel For You, <laughs> and that is chapter 13 of this book. So, you know, that's a that's definitely an appropriate blurb for the back of the book. <laughs> I would totally agree with that. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with writing about how you feel and how you think about music. That's always a plus to consider in today's day and age, too. Yeah, and another thing I want to point out quickly about the book is none of these chapters are extremely long and i i believe the book once you hit acknowledgements you're at about page 270 when the book ends and with 25 chapters it's like you know you don't really hit any chapters that are 20 30 40 pages long like i know we did have that in i believe it was the chuck klosterman book where he went on that whole little jamaica section and it was like 40 pages no no it wasn't chuck it was lester bangs oh right right right. yes sorry about that we've read a couple of compilations and they get a little mixed up in my brain (laughs) today's misaligned is brought to you by the leftover food comas that deanna and i are currently still in clearly (laughs) yes and so even there i mean lester bangs sort of feels like the first music writer who did these sort of compilation books and put together like pop culture and music in his writing as far as you know big music writers go and i think you know lester bangs aside from that 40 page thing which took up what like i think we said it was a tenth of the book or something that that section took up i feel like him chuck klosterman and rob sheffield it's like they sort of they found what works for them and while it, they're all sort of similar in certain ways they write so differently that you can enjoy different aspects of each writer while still getting you know sometimes the same sort of information from them and obviously with the pop culture references that sort of just adds a little something extra i know for me when i read about music and you sort of get these random little blurbs about other pop culture going on it makes it more entertaining to read and you know i think the fact that rob does this and he does the the chapters as song titles from you know specific bands and artists and whatnot that's sort of his thing and then with chuck you have all of these kind of absurd chapter titles or article titles when he is compiling stuff together and that's his thing and with lester bangs i mean he has a lot of things going on that it's kind of hard to put him in one spot and after we it's just the lester bangs-esque thing right i think there's no other way to describe it except for just straight up lester bangs yeah but i think you know these three writers have something that a lot of music and pop culture writers really look up to and i think that's sort of what makes them unique like some people clearly 
really like Rob Sheffield's writing and you know I know James is a big fan of his and you can sort of see that influence in a bunch of these up-and-coming music journalists and you know these new writers for Spin, Consequence of Sound and even some other sites. So do you think Mm -hmm. that sort of is going to continue? Do you think we're going to have another writer pop up and sort of do these kind of books? Because right now for me, it's mostly just Rob Sheffield and Chuck Klosterman that I've noticed who sort of do this kind of writing. Is it wrong to say James Kassar one day (laughs) might, you know, pop up like that? No pressure, James. No pressure. He's writing a book, you know. As, as James would do. But honestly, I could see James doing something like that. I mean, he's the one who spearheaded the thanks spinning pieces right. on the site. And he's the one that really, really gets into the narrative. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, I could I could see that. Yeah. And do you think there are other writers who are doing this and we just don't know about them because... Rob Sheffield and Chuck Klosterman are on such a big stage, basically, for their music writing. Because right now, I I mean, personally, off the top of my head, I can't think of too many other music and pop culture writers who sort of write books like Rob Sheffield and Chuck Klosterman do. I can't either. Honestly, I really can't. And obviously, That's what I said James. <laughs> yeah, obviously there are plenty of music book writers. Like you know, I have a whole shelf or two or three full of music books. So it's like there are music books out there, but none to the extent that I think Rob Sheffield and Chuck Klosterman have done. And obviously, you know, you'll get some writers who sort of write one big book. And then you don't hear too much about them after that. Yeah. I mean, that that does make sense. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose on some level, Andy Greenwald is doing the same thing. And while he hasn't, to my knowledge, written a music book since he did Nothing Feels Good, which was, I believe, like 10 years ago, 2006, around there, he still, you know, he has a podcast. He'll write about music tv and other pop culture over at i believe he's writing for the ringer as well as doing a podcast for the ringer so i would say you know maybe andy greenwald is not quite on that same level as rob sheffield and chuck klosterman but he's just like you know a step below them and i find him highly entertaining to listen to and he did you know he did a tv show for mr robot so he's definitely you know, a name people know, but I don't think he's done quite as much on the book front as even Rob Sheffield has done, and he only has four books right now. Mm-hmm. I know. Like, it's just, this is a tough question to think about, really, because thinking about who's doing what now, it's hard to say. Like, there are plenty of emerging writers out there who could do the same thing, and there are plenty of undiscovered writers right who also are out doing the same thing yeah and i think even stephen hyden might sort of become one of the next guys because he wrote your favorite band is killing me and that was a bunch of you know like 
Taylor Swift versus Kanye West, sort of like these little music rivalries. And that book was really oh, yeah. entertaining to read. And I'm very lucky. Still. Yeah, I'm very lucky. It's in the customers also bought section of talking to girls about Duran Duran. So it's staring oh. me in the face. So I remembered it. But I think, you know, he's going to, I know he just had a kid recently, so he's sort of been taking a break, but he has a podcast called Celebration Rock, which I believe I've recommended before. If I haven't, that's my recommendation. So, <laughs> you know, he, I think we don't necessarily need to get books from people either for them to be these successful music and pop culture critics because podcasts have become so big. And, you know, as someone who has had three different podcasts, currently only working on two, thankfully, I think if I was trying to do three a week, I might lose my mind. But it's definitely a big audience now for podcasts. And when you have Andy Greenwald doing something with The Ringer, and they have a huge audience already just from, you know, the people who followed Bill Simmons from ESPN and Grantland over to his project with HBO and The Ringer and everything. It's sort of, you know, they have a built-in audience. And when you get music writers like Stephen Hyden starting a podcast, it's like a lot of his audience for his writing is going to go, they're going to go listen to that. So I think there's a lot of different ways to consume this stuff, but you and I are both huge book people. So obviously we don't mind getting more books about this stuff, but no music writers of the world, please continue this trend <laughs> of writing books like this. Yeah. And I think we'll be seeing possibly a lot more of these compilation type books too, because, you know, these writers will do these big long pieces on specific bands or artists for websites. And then, you know, sometimes you just sort of want one place to read a writer's work. And I think that will sort of give us more of these compilation books, like what we had with Lester Bangs and Chuck Klosterman. And I think, you know, that's good, but sometimes that's not necessarily a cohesive read. And I think what Rob Sheffield does is he makes his books so cohesive because he wraps that personal story into it so well. It's like you're getting a full picture of something by the end of the book. Right. So that's, you know, my thoughts right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I just really like reading about music and pop culture stuff so much. And I think- Who doesn't? You know, that will obviously show with more of our book picks as we hit 2017 and start, you know, sort of getting more of these done because we started this as sort of a little experiment and we've sort of just kept doing it. And I'm assuming we will still keep doing it after we come back for the holidays, but we won't be picking the next book this week, but I know you and no. I have- plenty of ideas and i know I oh have we have a, a great list going right now yeah and i have a shelf full of books that i haven't even put on the list but you know we will definitely tell you guys our next regular episode which i believe will be out december 15th so that you know you can still have a little bit of time to ask for the book on your christmas list or whatever you do or get you know those amazon gift cards and put them to good use so we will definitely have the book announcement for then and then we won't cover it until the end of January when we come back. This way, you know, there will be plenty of time to do the holidays and get the book reading finished if it's a book you want to follow along with. 
but before we head into recommendations, do you have any last words about the book, Megan? I think I've covered everything I want to talk about with this book. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I didn't skim over it, so I didn't have too many details to add. But it's sort of like once you've read a Rob Sheffield book, you sort of get a really good feel for his writing style and everything. And after having read two, it's like, I know I like reading Rob Sheffield books. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Awesome. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> well, what are your recommendations for the week? All right. It is after Thanksgiving, and that means it is the time for Christmas music. And Casey Musgraves, a favorite of ours on this podcast, clearly, has released A Very Casey Christmas. What did I do on Black Friday instead of shop? I listened to it and watched Gilmore Girls, which is my other <laughs> recommendation because the revival on Netflix is really good and it's not four hours as I thought it was going to be. It's like it ranges between 90 and 110 minutes, roughly. Uh, so I finished that last night. That was good. I cried a lot, as <laughs> is typical. But going back to Casey, A Very Casey Christmas is her Christmas album this year, and it is great. It's kind of got a little bit of an island feel to it. And, oh my god, Present Without a Bow is probably my favorite song on that album. It's an original Christmas song that she did with Leon Bridges. And it is fantastic. It's very bluesy, too. So if you're into that whole blue Christmas kind of feel of a song, you'll definitely like it. And her song with Willie Nelson of Willie Nice Christmas. <laughs> that's, that's fun that's to say, but it's it's also really good. I enjoyed that as well. And not just because, you know, they turn the magic of green Christmas things into the magic of green Christmas things. If you uh, catch my drift there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about you this week? Did you think of anything besides that podcast? Not not really, but I'm definitely going to just recommend checking out Stephen Hyden's work in general. He writes quite a bit over at Uproxx. I believe I am saying that correctly. And, yes, you are. You know, like I said, he's been on a little bit of a break because he recently had a kid. So, you know, perfectly reasonable excuse to take a break from stuff. But I know Celebration Rock will be coming back soon. And like I said, that's his podcast. And Megan, I will send you a link to the book so you can check that out if you want to buy a copy. See, what I try to do is when it's like music books or books that I know I might want to reference again later, I definitely try to buy copies of them. And I happen to have received a review copy for Stephen Hyden's book. So, you know, I have that on my Kindle, good to go, but I will send you the link for it. And I will post the link in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to check that out in addition to his work on Uproxx and the podcast and everything. Nice. Yeah. So that wraps up our book club episode for November. And this will actually be going up December 1st. So, you know, there's that. Think of it as an early <laughs> Christmas present. Yes. And like I mentioned, we will be back with one more regular episode. Hopefully I will manage to get a guest episode for you guys the week in between. But with the holidays coming up, we'll see about that. I will I will do my best though, I promise. It's all good. Awesome. Well, as always, thank you guys for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>